I'm Mark Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Today's podcast is a real treat. One of the things I have enjoyed most and that has also surprised me about putting the Voice of Insurance together is that listening to an episode means you can get an idea of what people are like in real life. That's because after 20 minutes or so, even the most guarded of executives tends to let you in, even a little bit. Sometimes it's just the way they answer questions that says more than the words they say themselves. Well, today's guest took no time at all to get warmed up. He just went at it right from the start. Clive Washbourne is a legendary figure in the marine insurance market. His enviable track record of profitability has made him probably the nearest thing to a celebrity within that very particular and often very difficult to underwrite subset of our sector. So when the news came out that he had started his own marine MGA, Navium, on Fidelis's Pinewalk MGA platform, I made sure I put in a request for an interview. Despite so many years covering the markets, I hadn't met Clive before, but you wouldn't tell from this interview. Clive is the real deal. On this call, I found a lead underwriter completely at ease with himself and rejuvenated at the prospect of building a new business with the benefit of a successful career behind him. He was also infectiously happy, immensely charismatic and instantly likeable. What follows is a masterclass in entrepreneurial spirit and the art of successful underwriting. I also think it proof that personality still has a huge amount to play in success in many corners of our market. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Rick J. Lindsay, Chairman and CEO of Claims Direct Access, otherwise known as CDA. We all read about the claims nightmares in the United States of America, social inflation, nuclear verdicts, and the sky is falling. Hardly a day goes by without the news of reserve strengthening at major carriers. However, it's not all bad news. In the United States of America, we have the best legal system in the world, which allows you to fight frivolous claims and litigation and come out on top. In this kind of environment, you must get smarter about how you handle your claims and who your partners are. You have to move fast and be robust. CDA has been handling claims for over 40 years nationwide and has a team of 46 claims professionals, including 12 highly skilled attorneys and litigators. We have handled cases for major Lloyd syndicates since 1994, as well as U.S.-based major carriers, and have closed over 70,000 claims since 1994 nationwide. Not settling frivolous litigations is a must. CDA Claim Service means going the extra mile, handling claims quickly and vigorously with a proactive approach. Why not get in contact now to see how CDA can do the same amazing work for you and your partners that they do for me every day? Visit www.claimsdirectaccess.com today. Clive, thank you so much for taking the time. Obviously, starting a business must be incredibly time-consuming and very busy time for you. So why don't you just tell us the story of, you've been an incredibly successful underwriter at various outfits around the London market. So why have you founded Navium? I had a good long think again last night, and there's two words that come to mind. One is ego, and one is latent ambition. And what do I mean by that? Well, I was um, a main board director, as you know, at Beasley, and I was there for 20 years, and a, a mighty fine company it was. I was stood down off the board and left my executive role and was away for a bit. And when I came back, 
I was rejoined the team I formulated or put together, which was the marine aviation and energy team, and was doing peer reviewing and slip renewal. And I suddenly thought, is this really how my career is going to finish? It felt I've employed all these people. I've directed this team. The number two had taken over, and I'm sure he's doing a mighty fine job. But I thought, I really want to be back in the thick of decision making. And a good friend of mine said, well, look, you've always wanted to do your own thing. Why don't you just stop thinking about it and just do it? And I recalled what one of my really very favorite ship owners said, and that his father left the container firm he worked for, container shipping firm, at the age of 57 and bought his first ship. They ended up with 180 ships. And he turned around to me and says, never too late to start your own business. And I suddenly just felt full of enthusiasm and confidence just to do it. I had nothing to lose. I was 60 last year and I thought, just do it. And so I just did it and ended up with this wonderful business, Navium, being backed by Fidelis, who are a wonderful partner, sitting on Rinku Patel's Pine Walk platform, which is another first-class business, given $125 million lines, which is like being armed with a nuclear missile in the marketplace. And off we go. And that's really why I decided to do it. And I have not had a smile come off my face from the moment I started talking to Mr. Brindle, who, as we all know, is a brilliant and serial entrepreneur. I think obviously a lot of people thought Brindle, Washbourne together was an interesting mix. So I can assure you it's a fabulous mix. I was interested in what you said about ego there. There are two different types of ego. There's the ego that's not conscious that it exists, and there's the other ego. So it sounds like you've got the good one. When did you become aware of this, this Clive, <laughs> that you have this, this ego? What, 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 the good ego? No, no there's something. I'll, I'm going to be totally honest. I, a couple of times, I nearly started my own syndicates, and I didn't quite go through with it for two different reasons. It was part market cycle, et cetera, et cetera. And something has always niggled me that you didn't do it. You weren't brave enough to go. I think it was the bravery bit. I wasn't brave enough to do it. And to finally find that bravery at the age of 60s, I found surprising. I surprised myself. And as I said, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. And it's not frightening at all. I think with all people starting businesses, and I admire anyone who started a business, it's getting beyond your own fright is the most important step. Because most of the people who are thinking about starting a business probably have the ability and the intelligence to do so, but are always looking for reasons not to do so. They're looking for the downside rather than the upside. And I think when you get to 60, you know, there isn't many more chances. So I thought, well, either I do it now or I'll never do it. So off we go. The new journey. Is it the opportunity? Is it because the market's at an inflection point? Or was it, did you say, goodness me, these kind of opportunities, these harder markets, hardening, reorganizing markets don't come around very often? Is, is that one of the things that spurred you? That's a very good question, but the answer is no. Basically, I've always looked at the market in one very simple way. You have to look at it and say the market is always good. What does that mean? It goes up, it goes down. You have to ride up and down, but you've got to be very smart in the way you select risks and the amount of risk and the type of risk and how you monitor your exposure all the way through the cycle. It didn't actually have any bearing. And everyone's been coming up saying, "Car, your timing's brilliant. No, that's serendipity, I can assure you. It's not Clive Washburn being super smart. I just needed to get going again. And, you know, when I 
been through a pretty dark time. So just being able to get up in the morning and have self-worth is incredibly important to me. And my goodness, being able to, the alarm clock going off and I'm coming into work and seeing all the submissions on our computers is, it makes me feel like I'm living again and have self-worth. And that's terrific. I actually had Ash Bathia on the show only a couple of episodes ago, and he said when he decided to go on his own and do Probitas, which was obviously something he must have been thinking about all his career that he would probably do one day. He said, you really find out who your friends are. With you, with your nuclear missile, it sounds like he didn't have a big line when he first started Probitas. Does that big line really help you um, keep your broker friends? Yes, I think it does. Because look, when someone comes in and is looking for support on something, it's all very well going, yes, I can help on this here's my 3% line. When you can actually say, I I can give you some meaningful support, it really does help. In terms of talking about friends, I have to say, and I genuinely mean this, that I've been touched with the support that me and my team have been given by the broken community. They have been absolutely wonderful. Now, clearly what has helped is we're coming in five days a week. So we've got amazing footfall through the office. Submissions come down the computer. We then talk about it, which I still believe is the most efficient way of dealing with things. And also to the side, I'm not here to be a charity, but I actually believe most businesses should really try and come back because around our area are little businesses, shops and restaurants and stuff. And if we don't come back and help them, these people are going to be out of business. And don't we as a community owe something to the community as a whole? So coming back I felt virtuous from a business point of view and from a community point of view. And do you think it matters also from training some of those junior members of staff who are really going to benefit from sitting next to you? That is a very smart question and very topical because uh, both my deputy Ollie, Ollie Clark and myself were interviewing someone this morning and they were saying a younger person how they're missing out on the cultural things and the just the anecdotal conversations that are going on and how you pick things up so I think it's hugely important you know I do feel sorry for those graduates that started last October in say Canary Wharf that have yet to meet a colleague you know it's going to be a, a little bit of a baptism of fire when they do but then at least I suppose that they're going to be able to have you to put the, your arm around them when yeah. you know they encounter something for the first time yeah. that was unexpected. And you said, yeah. don't worry, we've done this a hundred times before. Absolutely. Yes. You've mentioned about Pine Walk and obviously part of Fidelis. As somebody who's a major figure in the market, who's going to probably have a following and get backing. There are lots of options available to you with MGA incubators and all sorts of people helping facilitate someone like you doing what you're doing. So why did you choose Pine Walk? Well, you're quite right. There was a a variety of options one could take, you know, with private equity, putting up the money for the working capital, then finding capital to write on behalf of, then finding an incubator. Here, you have everything you want. A Fidelis paper, which is as good as it gets. Rinku Patel's Pine Walk is an incredibly well-run MGA platform. They already had four MGAs here working and working efficiently. It was seamless. It's brilliant. The service level and his team are fantastic. So I could recommend it to anyone. It's brilliant to have the capital there and the actual MGA platform sitting side by side working seamlessly. It's truthfully, it was a no brainer when Richard Brindle originally pitched what he could do with me. And, and he, he simply said, Clyde, you just get your ass down and then we'll give you everything else. And, to, and he was he was right. <laughs> That's good. Uh, a good endorsement of your of your service provider. Yeah, it's, 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 absolutely.
I wonder whether a day ever goes by in the market when someone isn't talking about innovation. In an industry dominated by generic products, insurance businesses are understandably looking for some sort of advantage, some way to differentiate themselves that will make them a more attractive proposition. It's the right ambition, but are they looking in the right places? Because if they do manage to find a smart product or technology or service, the business benefit it delivers will usually be pretty short-lived for the simple reason that it can and will be copied. Case in point, who doesn't have a terrorism or cyber product live or in the works? But what if there was already the makings of a completely unique advantage hiding in plain sight? The team at Free Partners believe the only true differentiator you will ever have is your brand. It's yours and yours alone. Free Partners helps insurance businesses answer the question, why you? so that your brand becomes the engine for business growth. If creating a sustainable business advantage is what you're after, why not check out their three-step, standout, grow strong plan at freepartners.com. Obviously, one of the main reasons for starting Navium is, is personal. It's about job satisfaction, about career satisfaction for you. Sort of, you know, having a last chance to do really do something, put your, your stamp on something for yourself. But I'm sure you've got a more strategic view than that as well. Or what did you tell your investors? Presumably you have to tell them something more than just that. Is there a strategic plan? And also in terms of an entrepreneurial plan, obviously you're doing something entrepreneurial. Do you have a plan to build and sell this business at some point, you know, when you really want to properly retire and say, you know, I've done it? Or is it one of those ones that you would rather have sort of washboard incorporated that you can hand down to your grandchildren type thing? <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I knew this question was coming. At the moment, we've got a plan of uh, and a capacity of 100 million. Having seen what we've done in the first six weeks, I'm sure I can deliver the first year plan. We have really an ambition to grow a first class marine business. I don't like mediocrity. I tried not to have mediocrity where I previously worked. I want to build this into a market leading business. At the moment, I would say we've been shown an awful lot of business, not a huge amount in a leading role yet. Whereas in my old home, we used to lead well over half our business. And that's exactly where I want to get to, because that is where you get the best risk, uh, you get the best lines, and it gets the best showing. In terms of if we complete on plan, neither Fidelis nor Pinewalk wish to sell this business. We will have no need to do so. So at the moment, it is just to continue growing and growing in a measured, uh, selective way. So it's about building that capability. So it's yeah. not something that's going to be a sort of, you know, five-year plan and say, right, I'm going to exit at X multiple in five years' time. Not at the moment. But if I, you might listen to this and think this is disingenuous, but for me, it's not the money. Just being able to get up out of bed, put a suit on and come and be intellectually challenged again. I I've noticed my brain is slowly warming up after you know a few years of uh, <laughs> being a little bit less than utilised. It's terrific. So look, if at some later date something happens, that's fine. At the moment, I want to deliver a fabulous business and underwrite very profitably for, for Dalis and produce a profit for Pinewalk. Adam Talbier Baines on the show before Christmas with Volante and he was sort of espousing this very much this more sort of modern MGA model of almost, he said, look, I don't want to make any margin whatsoever on anything frictional on standing commission. He wants to absolutely live and die on the profit that he made for his backers. Is that the sort of thing you want to follow or would you be different? I'd be different. 
I'll tell you what, I think you have to look at everything at a profit level. And I think if you try to make that the margin so slim, you'll end up losing money pretty quickly. I hope to be able to make a profit both on commission and then on profit commission. In terms of underwriting, as I've always done, you have to underwrite selectively for profit. If you don't, in time, you will lose money. And that's something I've never done and I don't intend to do. So you feel that your backers are going to be happy, whatever happens, because you are going to make money for them. Well, that's what I hope to do, yes. But I'm, I don't want to, I hate hubris coming into play, fingers crossed behind my back sort of thing. But yes, absolutely. And you have the comfort of the small amount, if there's a tiny bit of margin that's already built in, just in yeah. basic commission, would you say that's fair because you're in a startup phase anyway? Absolutely. I suppose they might only get grumpy if I double the budget. <laughs> Another trend that's been happening in the MGA world, as the market's hardened and have become far more selective with some of the not so good MGAs have fallen by the wayside, not really got support. And obviously the top ones have, have all been fully backed and probably expanded. A part of that has been them sourcing their own capacity via all sorts of different structures, but maybe syndicate in a box or captive reinsurer in Bermuda, that kind of thing. Is that something that appeals to you? And if so, what sort of structures would you be going for? Again, that's an interesting question. In simple terms, no. Look, this might seem like a PR for Pine Walk and for, for Dayless. The capacity and the paper is so good and the platform I'm on is so good, I simply don't want and don't need to look for capacity elsewhere. These have been brilliant partners and I really hope that I can give them the return on capital that they require. And if I do that, I am quite sure they will always give me sufficient capacity to write the business that we wish to write. So no, the plan is not to spread and have other capital and capacity brought into the MGA. Some might use it as a way of incentivizing your underwriters to really make sure that they're eating their own cooking and see that some of your bonus pot is sitting in that, you know, little captive reinsurer, for example. Yeah. Um, I have to say we hadn't thought that, but I think well, there's enough. I think with the profit commissions and our shareholding, I think there's enough alignment of interest between us and Navian team and Pine Walk and Fidelis. And so also, it sounds like on the capital side, you're happy for, if it was to be 100% Fidelis to let them do any, if they want to farm yeah. any of that capacity out on the back door, that that's, you just let them deal with that. They're the capital people. Absolutely. That's exactly how it works. You just focus on picking good risks and developing your underwriting um, service levels and being a good underwriter. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the beauty of this relationship with Fidelis and Pinewalk is because it's so seamless behind us. What we're trying to do is be a market-leading business which is selective and profitable. And this way, we have all our attention on underwriting. And I think that's the thing that I've most enjoyed compared to Lloyd's with all the rather heavy oversight you're getting Lloyd's to hear is that all our concentration and discussions in the office is around risk selection and getting the brokers in and who's supporting us, who's not, how we can get that, what risks we're going to take, why we're going to take it, what risks we're going to throw out. And it works beautifully. It's a very clean way of underwriting. Just to summarize the Navium vision, so what people should be expecting from you in the next few years is that you want to be building something that's going to be playing across the marine market and trying to build that full lead capacity. So to have all the ancillary stuff that goes with that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, with a first class service ethos, we want to be able to turn risk around very, very quickly. And let us not forget what insurance is about. And that is, it's a promise to pay. So we get a 
Tony Walker arrives in a couple of months as head of claims and a very, very top class claim service, because that is what we're selling. That is, you know, if we're a market store, we're selling claims. We want to be able to sell it well and at a, a reasonable price that gives the client comfort and gives us a return on capital, which we're comfortable with. Clive, you're the marine expert. So let's talk about the market itself rather than Navium. What's the current state of the marine market? This is only my observation. Of course, everyone's got different observations. I would say cargo's been had an upward trend for about four years. The rating is, I think, robust. And can I just say, from a Navian point of view, Henry Morn had come from Antares within the next six months. Liabilities, I think you can look at the group represents, the group reinsurance of the international P&I clubs represents a very large proportion of the market's income. It's stressed. Let's not beat around the bush. They've got further deterioration. They've got this claim off Sri Lanka. There is going to be a major correction there. And that will obviously have an overspill into the ancillary contracts. But the overall marine book as a whole, I think it's always, if it's been written with care, can be profitable. But I think there'll be a correction from the group point of view. Hull, I think, I still regard as flaky. And what do I mean by that? There are bits and pieces like the building risks and the mortgages interest and the mortgages additional perils have paid some nice increases and probably is profitable. But there's still large amounts of fleets where the pricing is utterly ridiculous. What do I think is causing that? I think the world capacity is still higher than demand. And I think that on the whole is keeping pricing down. I'll give you an example. I saw a fleet with some VLCCs, very large crude carriers. And as you know, they're rather big. (laughs) And they were charging $50,000. And I nearly fell off my chair. A week ago, I got an order on a tanker, 2,000 tonner in Abidjan as a bunkering tanker. We've got it on restricted conditions, meaning we're not giving it machinery coverage. It's a million dollar value, $50,000 deductible and we're getting 40,000 bucks. Now you tell me, do you want a 2,000 tonner for 40,000 or do you want a VLCC for 50? You see that sort of disparity and yet there are bits and pieces where, you know, I saw a very nice handy sized container boat. We got $100,000. The ship's earning $30,000 a day at the moment. Nice risk, but I can't see that market moving significantly for a bit. The war an aviation war is what it is. If you write it over a 10-year period, you should make money. And that's going to be our intention. It goes up, it goes down. It depends on whether there are areas that are active with the breach APs. The last two years, the Gulf has generated a lot of money for people. I wonder if we're beginning to come to the end of that, but I hope not. So with war, it's about being consistently in there. Yeah. Because if you're yeah. only in and out, then you could just be unlucky, couldn't you? Absolutely right. And that's why you have reinsurance. You write that, if you don't mind me saying so, you write damn big lines on the war account. You protect it with reinsurance for the shock loss and you stick with it. You should make money and you should make your reinsurance money over time. Because the great thing about war is if something goes wrong, you give notice, you correct your rates and you can get the money back. If you think of that attack um, at the airfield in Sri Lanka, however long ago it is now, I'm an old man. It could be 20 years ago. I think it was, yes. You know, the money came back almost in a year. And that is the great beauty of the war account. And I think Lloyd's and the London market is pretty neat at it. So in terms of where you're expecting rating to go, you're fairly happy with cargo. So as that sounds like it's going to be fairly stable. 
on the liability side of things, you're as an underwriter, you're, yep. you're sitting expecting big increases because you picked something to break there. Yeah. With Hull, it sounds like you're unhappy in in the way that people are always unhappy about Hull because it yeah. seems to be such a differentiator for everybody. But do you think there's anything is actually likely to happen in Hull? Is anything going to break that uh, soft status quo? Do you know something? I would love to say yes, but I'm I'm not sure. I think as with all classes of business it takes a significant number of people to pull out so that when the broker goes around at fifty thousand dollars of elcc he's stuck at 80 then you start seeing the rate change is that going to happen i can't call it i wish i had a crystal ball but if, if that did happen that means we'd have all three accounts in growth mode and we'd certainly be in income growth mode <laughs> But it sounds like for the moment, you're not really going to bet all your chips on Hull and you're just going to play in the way you always have. Yeah, absolutely. And But what's interesting about it is we have thrown an enormous amount out, but there have been one or two opportunities with fleets, should we say, that's had a difficult three or four years and the rates are suddenly actually their historic high, then you can have a look. But that's what I put into, you know, I have three pots and pot sees is what was I call my opportunist pot. And that is at a moment in time, that risk can be written at that rate. But you've got to be absolutely brutal on renewal if there's any sign of rate reduction or change in terms or change in the risk. And that's always been sort of one of my modus operandi. So it's always about taking those opportunities, particularly when something's had a couple of losses and some of the local softer markets are not interested anymore for a couple of years, and then you get the chance and then any, any sign of it softening again, then you've got to go. Absolutely. And you do get these opportunities. I mean, I, I won't mention the name, but yesterday I was offered a little fleet of three container boats. They've had a bloody big loss. And I said, well, look, if we slice down the values, take the deductible from 75 to 250, have surveys on all of them and put 50% on the rate, I might be interested. And the guy said, we'll go away and think about it. So one or two of those makes it interesting. So is that really the secret of underwriting is always to be open, available to offer something? Yeah, open, always have an open mind about what's put in front of you. But equally, there are certain people, and I won't mention them, there are certain owners we will just not touch. And, you know, I just don't think you ever have a chance of making money from them, and for whatever reason. <laughs> but the core is really about providing a solution to the broker when there's yes, a problem. absolutely. We've been reading a lot about, obviously, couldn't have a podcast today without talking about COVID. And obviously, we've seen anecdotally in the sort of general news you see the impact of covid on marine in terms of crews being displaced and stranded all over the world and and things but how how has it affected the, the marine market and the insurance side oh, i don't think it really has the most visible area it's affected is obviously the cruise industry yeah. and all those underwriters that write large portfolios of cruise ship owners that's been a dramatic decrease in income because generally speaking most of those now are at 25 percent of their trading fleet but otherwise not affecting the insurance well what's interesting though is because of containers and container ships being in the wrong place and ports being shut down because of covid the freight market has gone through the roof because vessels have been stuck in ports where they're normally in and out in two days are being stuck for two to three weeks and the freight market has gone through the roof. And if you take a, a handy-sized container boat, you know, about 1,200 TUs, not so long ago, they were $6,000 a day with an operating cost of about five, six thousand. They're now fixing at 29000 a day. So actually, it's beneficial 
to us because the owners are making money. And I tend to find you have less claims when the owners are making good money on the freight. They don't want to bother their insurers. When they're not making money, a claim which they might or might not means that they will probably make a claim. But now they might just drop it rather than force the price of their insurance up on renewal. So it's overall, it's, you'd say it's positive for risk. It's not that yeah. sometimes you see people say the opposite to say, well, because every rust bucket is now in demand, you know, that we're going to have slightly lowering of the average quality or age of, uh, or increasing the average age of ships that are out there because it's all hands to the pump. You're not of that view. No, I'm, I'm really not. And actually, when you talk about rust buckets, when I look back 20 years ago, the quality of ships were far, far worse and the scrutiny from the class and stuff was far worse. Now, it's quite hard to be a naughty boy with all the GPS and stuff. You know, you can't go around grounding ships on purpose. You, you get found out. <laughs> In overall, actually, so you're happy with risk quality. I, um, I'm very happy with the risk quality. I'm just not happy with the risk price. <laughs> And when you've got that inflation, obviously, because in such a volatile industry where the values are so volatile, aren't they, in terms of day freight rates and spot rates and stuff for for, for different things, do you feel that you get paid for that extra increase in value? Is it hard to keep up? It's very hard to keep up with the values. Where it becomes a problem, obviously, is when the freight market drops. You've got a mortgage on a, a unit that the owners bought, say, at 30 million, and it's worth 22 million. That can be a problem. But as I said, I don't think you get the same level of scuttling at all nowadays compared to the past. Um, but you're quite right. If the v- value of the vessel goes up, the IV rates, the TLO rate on which you charge to take the value higher normally is not sufficient, especially when you look at what the underlying profitability of the ship is. That's been one of our biggest problems is not getting the right premium for the vessel. So that's always an eternal problem. We seem to have the same problem in the non-marine world with uh, lumber prices are going through the roof and everyone's slightly worried that the next hurricane, you know, all the timber joists and things are going to cost at least five times more than they would have done. But they never quite feel they're going to be paid for that current and present danger. No. Let's ask also about the other main thing that happened in the marine market for everyone who's not in marine, but I said that Suez Canal loss. Did it really change anything? Or was it just no. a wake-up call? Or was it just back to business again as usual? I think you summed it up with your last comment. It is why we have insurance. I, I don't think there's anything major to be gleaned from it. We haven't seen some systemic problem. Ships sometimes get into trouble, and that's what happened there. And it's a good reminder for everyone to know that's why insurance exists, for that, the unexpected. And that was unexpected, you know, a gust of wind and too big a ship, bang. Absolutely. Well, yes, I've been on the Norfolk Broads and I have had a similar problem with it. With <laughs> the very shallow, these shallow bottom boats and they just yeah. go sideways when the wind yeah. blows and they have very high superstructure. And so I can imagine with these contention ships is far did, worse. Did, question is, did you have to be towed off the sand? No, I didn't. I, 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 luckily, I managed to sort of, you know, I worked it out. I just did slammed you? it in reverse and yeah, I managed to get myself out, out into the mainstream again and I was yeah. okay. But, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, but I can see exactly how it happens in these narrow it's, it's, waterways. Yeah. I see. Yes. yes. <laughs> I think you've already answered this, but I'll ask you specifically. So in terms of what Navian wants to do in that wider marine market, would you want to be there competing with everybody? Or, or do you want to be known for some particular specialisms? That's what happens with an MGA that they said, well, we're really, really good at this very specific thing. And that's why people come to see us. But with you, do you want to play across the board? Well, we do want to play across the board because we're very specific 
in that we are a marine MGA and that's cargo, liabilities, war, hull buildings and stuff. That's quite specific in its own right. In my old home, I had satellites, aviation and energy. So in a way, I've narrowed it down quite dramatically anyway. I just want to be known that for just being a high class business and that we begin to lead more and more business and that we put down a substantial line at the top of the slip and that we pay our claims quickly and efficiently. And it's really as as simple as that, I think. Clive, obviously, you've been in the business for a long time and you've seen technology develop over the years. And obviously, you were there before we had computers, I'm sure, and we had the green screen things. And then now we've got electronic places and other things. But a lot of people I'm talking to of the class of 2020, for example, of different startups, they would all say back in the old days, as I've said, obviously, what's great about us is we don't have any legacy on the claim side. We've got no reserves that are any, any kind of question that might need to be topped up or whatever. And they say, look at you know, our pristine balance sheet. But these days, they're also majoring on the fact that they've got no technological legacy either. They don't have a whole load of stuff that's hidden away in some old server that no one knows how to access and, unless you know, they know some really ancient programming language or that kind of thing. Do you feel that advantage? Absolutely, I do. I'll come on to that in a bit, but you want to hear my history. I joined Althwaite's box in 1982, and I used to get down the ledgers and handwrite the premium from the cards into the ledgers. So that's where I started. Then I can remember Althwaite buying us all a, a computer each. And then in 1986, we came into Lloyd's, you know, with an electronic placement system. And here we are. <laughs> Yeah, to remind ourselves how our electronic placement has gone, it's 2021. I still find it quite extraordinary how the London market cannot seem to get this totally right. Yes, as we are, we're on PPL and white space, which are great, but isn't it amazing? The brokers can send the information to us, but there's no way of downloading automatically into our own servers the information in a set format. So, in effect, we're duplicating the work. I do hope the market as a whole moves forward rapidly at some stage because it's not to replace face-to-face because I actually still think it's a very efficient way of discussing a risk is face-to-face and, the, and you ping-pong the, the questions and answers. But the actual transfer of, of data needs to be seamless, needs to be that it can't be interrupted or mistakes made in the transfer of that data. So what's our situation? The great thing was we arrived on Pine Walk with a really nice system, which is working beautifully and worked from day one. It's basically Microsoft based. and It's terrific. But in terms of the market, I think the market really needs to go up another gear. I think the brokers have done great to get onto those two systems, but we need to go further and that will help us all. And I think Lloyd is on the case on this. So yeah. you, you, you applaud all any of these common oh, data no, standards absolutely. that are going to make everything seamless. Absolutely. I think, look, if, all due respect to Lloyd's, I think they're nervous as hell because I think you and I know how much money has been wasted on this over the last 20 years. And it still makes them twitchy as hell when there's money looking like they're having to commit more money worries them. But yes, let's just hope this journey ends soon. And then we stay. It is a thankless task if it works. Everyone says it's supposed to work. And then, of course, if it suddenly becomes a hundred million debacle that goes wrong, yeah. which we have seen before, then, of course, it's a terrible risk to the reputation of those that are in charge of it. So you can understand, have to have all of our sympathies, I think. No, I have to say, don't get me wrong, I'm not criticising. I understand I would be twitchy about spending any sort of money when you know your predecessors have been absolutely whipped within an inch of their life. <laughs> And also, but what about technology for to help you? Obviously, you know that gathering around a smart group of underwriters and looking at what you've got in front of you is 
one of the best ways of doing things. There's a lot of insure techs and technology companies now that are giving you tools, Clive, that are showing tools to say, here's a way of perhaps if you've got 100 risks, I'll show you the top what I think what the computer thinks are the top 10 so that you can save time and get to the good ones first, rather than leave those cheap VLCCs at the back of the queue. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you do you started to embrace any of those tools? We're looking at a we're looking at a variety of product providers at the moment. We're starting with just a pure information database. That I think the hardest thing for any of these companies is to get past Rinku Patel because whatever they want to charge, he slashes them up. So if, if we can get past Rinku, we're going to get some good systems. Sorry, I, I, levity. But coming back to your question, of course, any system that might help us make informed decisions, we are very interested in. Some of them I have seen in the past, I haven't been utterly convinced they've been taking one's own data and spinning it back to you and coming to the same conclusion you already knew. So I wasn't quite sure the value of that. But yes, anything that's worthwhile, we will certainly look at purchasing. Because certainly there have been lots of developments in Hull and in cargo and yeah. perhaps, and you'd say the valuable ones are the ones that are going to be aggregating all sorts yeah. of third-party data that's available. And certainly, you know, if you think you've got a big cargo, but anything that can help inform aggregate exposure has got to be really neat because that's one of the most important things you can get wrong in underwriting is not knowing what you've got on risk, where you've got it on risk. So having that data is absolutely imperative to protect your capital base and make a profit. I've always thought that that would be a great application of technology, particularly with containers being of a certain value, being able to know where they are and what's inside them at any given time and perhaps know what temperature they are and whether they're a bit wet or not would be a good idea. Yes. (laughs) Right. Anyone with technology solutions should come talk to you, but they're probably going to go through Rinku first. Uh, Yes. One last thing that's certainly that's changed in all of our careers, that's been an emphasis on, on building culture. And being conscious of, of that culture, perhaps when we started in the business, there just was a culture, but we didn't, no one ever called it culture or no one ever thought about it. They just did what they did and it was the way things were. These days now, when you start a business, you get that opportunity to have a blank sheet of paper and say, well, this is the ideal, almost to write a constitution for the way that people are going to behave and the way that people should expect to be treated in a business. So what sort of culture would you like to build at Navium and how are you sort of starting that out now that you know yeah. that in 2021, this is what yeah. we do? There's the underwriting culture, which again is being very service driven and open and transparent and a high level of energy. And so that the brokers and the clients understand that we're trying to produce a quality product. In terms of the office environment, I don't like boyish atmospheres. I like a real mix of cultures and female and male. And the most important thing in my office is this, is laughter. We spend a lot of time in the office. We need to respect each other and just laugh out aloud on a regular basis. And that works for me. And a weird thing, I like people being clear and open and honest. There's still too many people who think dark arts and dishonesty is the way to do business. I won't tolerate it at all. Don't like politics and people who are trying to get promotions. No, no, no. I've never, ever employed anyone in any office that's caused trouble like that. I love to employ top class people, empower them to get on with it. I think if you micromanage people, I generally think you don't get the best out of them. Let talent flourish and the company will flourish with it. And it sounds like you really want people just to speak up and speak their minds rather than complain six months later. Absolutely. Even now with just the three of us, just challenge works really well. Gets you thinking. We all need challenge. Anyone who thinks they know everything is an ignorant man, really. 
get up, learn something new every day. It's wonderful. So you want to encourage those sort of people yeah. uh, to make sure, even the quiet ones, make sure that they uh, you ask their opinion. Well, the quiet ones are always interesting. It's the same, actually, for a really good chairman on a board. Is a really good chairman will look round, and the person that said nothing, he will ask their opinion, what their opinion of that, that, that discussion was. That's normally a good chairman, I think. It's getting everyone's opinion, because everyone's valid. And there could be just one little voice that saves you a fortune. Clive, I've really, really enjoyed talking to you. It sounds like the sort of operation that would uh, even accommodate someone as difficult to work with as me. Are you really that difficult? You're, you're <laughs> that, you're, I have to say you're a very char- and It's been great being interviewed by you. You're a charmer. And so uh, thank you for asking interesting questions. Well, thank you so much, Clive. Good luck with everything. All power to your elbow. Yep. Good luck with this navigating this market, the marine market, which has never been that easy as far as I no. can understand. A, no. a great graveyard of other egos. So yes. good luck with yours. And I hope you find all the satisfaction that you haven't found in your career so far. Good luck with everything. Thank you very much indeed. Bye bye. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost-effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.